It is Thursday, February 24th, and this is People Every Day. Hello, everyone. It's me, Janine Rubenstein. Thank you for listening to us on this here Thursday. The news keeps getting heavier and heavier this week, and there's so much to get into. So let's just start with what is top of mind and top of all of our news feeds today. That's the sound of the bombings that are taking place in and around the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. Ukrainian-born dancer and Dancing with the Stars regular Max Shmerkovsky shared his emotional eyewitness account in a video to Instagram yesterday. The choreographer was standing on a balcony in the country's capital witnessing the chaos unfurl. I, yes, I'm here. I'm in Kiev. I trust my sources and no one saw this coming. Not that no one saw this coming, but... Everyone was hoping that the fight, the finality of the situation will be averted, right? That there's not going to be this kind of aggression. Shmarkovsky is married to another Dancing with the Stars pro, Peter Murgatroyd, and they share a five-year-old son. In a later post, he shared that he was, quote, about to go into a bomb shelter because Ish is going down, end quote. Earlier this week, President Biden called the Russian escalation a flagrant violation of international law that commands a firm response from the international community. And now, chillingly, NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg said today, we now have war in Europe on a scale and of a type we thought belonged to history. Ugh. We will continue to watch and keep an eye on this story with the rest of the world. And now in other European news, Queen Elizabeth has postponed her virtual meetings for the second time this week. The 95-year-old monarch is still battling the coronavirus. Yesterday, the queen was well enough for her weekly audience with Prime Minister Boris Johnson, which she did by phone from Windsor Castle. And a spokesperson for Buckingham Palace stated, Her Majesty is continuing with light duties. No other engagements are scheduled for this week. And to finish off your Royals update, Prince Harry filed a libel lawsuit against British media company Associated Newspapers, publisher of the Daily Mail, the Mail on Sunday, and Mail Online. And yes, this is a new filing. The spokesperson for the Prince confirmed he's suing Daily Mail publishers, but did not provide details about which of the titles is being sued or why. This is the third time Harry and wife Meghan Markle have filed suit against the company since October of 2019. Now for an update to a story that has shaken the film industry for the last few months. Back in October, we reported on cinematographer Helena Hutchins, who was shot and killed on the Santa Fe, New Mexico film set of Rust, uh, struck by a bullet from a prop gun. Actor and producer on the film, Alec Baldwin, was the one holding that prop gun when it fired, but he maintains that he never pulled the trigger. Well, this morning on The Today Show, Matt Hutchins, Helena's widower, spoke for the first time about his feelings on this terrible incident that killed his wife and how it has affected him and their young son. So here to talk about that interview and developments in the case is People Movies News Editor Nigel Smith. Hey, Nigel. Hi, Janine. Well, you know, months later, the story is still so, so sad, even more so today. I mean, it's hard to imagine receiving that call that Matt did on that fateful day, but First, let's listen. Let's listen really quick to, you know, what his emotions were. He opened up about getting that news. A member of the production team told me that Helena had been shot. And uh, my heart sank right away. 
And the first thing I thought, I sat down and I said, I have to get my son because I had to be with him. When I got through the, to the doctor and spoke with him and he detailed exactly what had happened and that she didn't survive, I mean, I was, I was heartbroken. Uh, and I knew that I had to tell my son right away when I saw him. Wow. So, Nigel, just take me through your reaction to this interview, to him sitting down and opening up for the first time. This, this interview came after he filed a lawsuit against the Rust producers, which include Alec Baldwin, um, over the death of his wife. Obviously, it was extremely powerful to, to, to hear from him for the first time about the emotions that he felt, um, that his son felt. The most interesting part of the interview came when Hoda asked for his reaction to Alec Baldwin's pretty controversial ABC News sit-down in December, where Alec Baldwin said pretty definitively that he felt no guilt over what had transpired. And Hoda just asked Matthew for his reaction to that. Watching him, I just felt so angry. I was just so angry to see him talk about her death so publicly in such a detailed way, and then to not accept any responsibility after having just described killing her. That hit me hard, much harder than Alec Baldwin's interview, because, you know, here you have the husband of, of the woman who actually died. The idea that the person holding the gun, causing it to discharge, is not responsible is absurd to me. But gun safety was not the only problem on that set. Mm -hmm. The anger there is just, it was, it was very, very powerful. I guess I'm wondering about that relationship because we got a sense from Alec Baldwin early on that he was in contact with her family and he was, you know, very supportive of them. And, and it kind of felt like that was vice versa. But this is kind of throwing that notion out of the window, right? There were photographs of uh, Matthew and Alec meeting shortly after her death. And Sohota asked about that, and Matthew actually spoke with the Daily Mail, I think, at the time, just about, you know, the nature of their meetings. And, and Matthew was, um, you know, not complimentary necessarily to Alec, but, but said that, you know, they had a general understanding of, of, of grief over what had transpired. Matthew just really put it all, all into context for Hoda, saying that, you know, I had just met him so shortly after what had happened. Um, I was in a very different place than I am now. He's obviously had a lot of time to reflect on her death. And I really think it was Alex's interview and Alex's attitude towards the, the events of that horrible day that really kind of set off Matthew's um, reaction and his eventual lawsuit against the rest producers to try to bring some clarity to this whole situation. Just moving on to the legal side of things, on February 15th, the Hutchins family did file that wrongful death lawsuit against Alec Baldwin, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, the armorer on set, and several other crew members and producers involved in the filming, citing, quote, reckless behavior and cost-cutting, and alleging up to 15 safety practices were just disregarded. So with the investigation still underway and, and no one having been charged yet, how does something like this get processed. And, and, and I'm wondering the effect on the film industry. When this first happened, um, our legal experts said that, um, you know, the probability of him going to jail, for example, were obviously very, very low. But given this new lawsuit, 
I'm no, by no means a legal expert. I obviously do think that Matthew has quite a case to at least get some financial compensation. George Clooney uh, has has spoken out on it. Even uh, The Rock, arguably, I think he's the biggest movie star in the world right now. He has made a, a plea or a pact to say that he will never um, use real firearms on set. Like, why are real firearms being brought onto sets regardless if they don't have live ammunition or not. I mean, there are props out there that, that can look like the real thing. So let's just put those in the hands of the people so that this kind of thing never happens again. Well, Nigel, thank you so much for, for taking me back into this story. And, and there will be more. Yeah, thank you so much. Coming up, a story that continues to provide more questions than answers. There's new information as to what really happened to actor and comedian Bob Saget. But before that, you didn't think we'd make it through a week without giving you the latest lowdown on some of the buzziest celebrity couples, did you? Heart Monitor is next. Stick around. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. We are back and it's time for today's Heart Monitor, checking in on some celebrity couples who are deep in love or so far out of it. And we begin with the latter. Dancing with the Stars veteran Cheryl Burke and Boy Meets World alum Matthew Lawrence are calling it quits after nearly three years together as husband and wife. Burke filed for a divorce on February 18th, citing irreconcilable differences. The two met when Matthew's brother, Joey, was on Dancing with the Stars, and they dated for a few months in 2006. Then, over a decade later, they rekindled things in 2017 before getting engaged a year later. And now this. So sad to hear it, but... Let's move on to a couple that's on the upswing. It's me, the OG funk on Tuesday, 2-22-22, Brat Loves Judy co-stars rapper DeBrat and entrepreneur Jessica Judy DuPart tied the knot in Fairburn, Georgia. The two picked the date with all of those twos for a reason. As DuPart said, we've been calling each other twin flames for a while. So this date, 2-22-22, is a significant event. We just didn't want to miss it because it comes once in a lifetime. And DuPart continued... It signifies angel numbers, and it also is reminiscent of twin flames. And lastly, there's a couple who have surprisingly rekindled their flame. Now, the pandemic was stressful for a lot of relationships, and all that time spent in close quarters expedited countless breakups. But at least one confined couple drew closer. In 2017, actors Ben Stiller and Christine Taylor separated after 17 years of marriage. But in an interview this week, Stiller told Esquire that he moved in with Taylor to be closer to their children, Ella, who's 19, and Quinlan, who's 16 during lockdown, and that led to the duo getting back together and finding romance again. Unlike, if you recall, their characters in the film Dodgeball. I'm here to begin my courtship with you, Kate. 
You fired me so I'd date you? Yeah, huh? You are a crazy little man. Stiller said the reunion was unexpected, but, quote, then, over the course of time, it evolved, he told the outlet. We were separated and got back together and were happy about that. He added, it's been really wonderful for all of us, unexpected, and one of the things that came out of the pandemic. So happy for their whole family. Now, we have an update in the story surrounding the death of beloved actor and comedian Bob Saget. Following the news that he died of head trauma, his autopsy showed that he had several fractures to the back of his head and around his eyes when he died. Tons of questions were raised, and fans have been wanting to know just how this tragedy could have happened. Now, investigators have pieced together a theory on what took place that fatal night, and People has exclusive reporting. Joining me now to discuss it is People's senior TV editor, Brianne Heldman. Hey, Brianne. Hey, Janine. So good to have some answers here, man. Seriously. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Um, When Bob Saget checked into the Ritz-Carlton in Orlando on January 7th, he was in good spirits. Hotel employees told people in this week's issue that, quote, he was cracking jokes, waving to people in the lobby. When people asked for selfies, he would run over and grab their phones to take the pictures with them, joking the whole time. But of course, the weekend ended in devastation. The last time Bob was seen on surveillance video, he was walking into his hotel room. So tell me what authorities saw. So Bob entered his room at 2.17 a.m. And when authorities entered the room, it was neat. His suitcase was packed and sitting by the door. He was laying in the bed, as we know, he had died. And That raised a whole bunch of questions. Police went back to the site and tested around looking for blood samples and hair to try to figure out where he bumped his head. And they didn't find anything uh, on the marble nightstands. They do believe that ultimately, at some point in the bathroom, he lost consciousness, fell, hit the back of his head, and then at some point from there, woke up in a groggy state made his way to the bed, lied down, and died sometime around 4 a.m. So, again, he he entered at 2.17 a.m., and the next time anyone was in or out of that room, security. So his family didn't hear from him for a while. He didn't check out at regular checkout time. When his family hadn't heard from them, they called security at the hotel, and a security guard entered the room, had to cut through the deadbolt, which had been locked from the inside. Again, like the surveillance video, proves that no one else had been in or out of that room and the security guard found him. And so there is still that question around what happened in that bathroom to him that would have caused him to have such a terrible fall, right? Absolutely. And really, we may never know. We do know that the toxicology report showed that there was no signs of alcohol in his system, no drugs that had been not prescribed to him at any point. Uh, it In the room, there had been some aspirin and some, you know, regular over-the-counter medications, as well as a, a heart medication that was prescribed to him. But beyond that, we really don't know what happened. It did seem that he tested positive for COVID post-mortem. He had had a bout of COVID over the holidays, but had seemingly recovered. We may never really know what exactly happened, what exactly caused him to lose consciousness, but it is quite clear that this death happened through a traumatic head injury that clearly was from some sort of fall 
It was not because anyone hit him in the head. He wasn't in a car accident on the ride home. In fact, authorities spoke to the driver of the town car that took him from the comedy club to the hotel, and they said he felt that the show was successful. He was tired. He took a nap. It was a two-hour drive. That's pretty normal at 2 a.m. The authorities are all 100% certain that it was an accidental death. But as you say, it does put to rest, you know, a lot of those conspiracy theories about, you know, he got into a fight or, you know, all of those different things, just being able to see this footage, footage that I know his family had pushed against, you know, being released. And and they have really been trying to um, just hold off on what's being put out there after his death as they are themselves mourning. So tell me, what do we know about just his family, his loved ones, also his co-stars? How are they doing? We know that everyone is determined to talk about Bob and celebrate his life and celebrate his causes. Uh, And, you know, they are in mourning. And understandably, what they were really pushing to be blocked was footage of the autopsy, you know, things that would be extremely dark to see, but that are technically available through public information. And the judge granted that, which was a kindness, I believe. Well, Brianne, thank you so much for for giving us this update and giving us more clarity on all this. I certainly don't really have that many questions remaining that I believe could ever be answered. Well, to wrap up today, and as we head into the end of Black History Month, I'd like to send you off highlighting a couple more Black-owned businesses and organizations that are brightening up the world, Lord knows we need it, and that you should have on your radar. First up, Define Socks is a Black-owned business run by friends Johnny Fields and Corey Stewart-Glaze. It's all about fun and funky socks these days, like style-wise, not stinky. (laughs) And their sock company is based out of St. Louis, Missouri, but they are focused on giving back to their community. Define contributes portions of proceeds to Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation and regularly donates socks to the local homeless population. Feel free and feel good about showing them some love. And lastly, there's a powerful organization that I absolutely love, Black Girls Code. BGC was founded by mom, Kimberly Bryant, who was looking for a way to get her daughter interested in STEM. She found that most youth coding programs weren't geared towards her community, and she decided to start something new. Black Girls Code has the goal to train one million girls by 2040 to not only learn coding, but how to innovate and create across all STEM fields. BGC offers workshops, summer camps, and mentorship opportunities for young women and girls of color across the country. Well, thank you all for listening to us again today. Tomorrow is Friday, yay, and we'll be back to send you off into the weekend with the latest stories on people every day.